So now I want to move to a couple of examples, uh, both from the historical books, so Joshua and Judges. And when we will first of all read these texts, uh, and then I'll talk about what Dawkins says about them, and then I will um, respond with what I want to say about them. And you'll notice in, on the handout, you may have noticed already, that the things that I think are in italics and the things that Dawkins says uh, in the light, in, in, mainly in non-italics. So I've, I've done it that way so that you can see my response uh, to what he has to say. I want to consider how one might properly contextualize these examples, not necessarily to condone them. I'm not saying everything in the Old Testament is good by any means, uh, but I want to understand what's going on. And I believe that once one does that, then one can start to appreciate, um, well, it's in a deeper way. So the first example is Joshua and the famous story of the falling walls of Jericho. Uh, is somebody uh, primed to read Joshua 6, 1 to 21 to me, to us rather? Yes, over there. Could you do that? Thank you. It's on the, ha the other handout. Do you want to come here? Yes, please. Cheers, thanks. This is uh, Joshua 6, 1 to 21, Jericho taken and destroyed. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you, along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days, with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horns, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. To the people he said, Go forward and march around the city. Have the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. As Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. To the people Joshua gave this command, You shall not shout or let your voice be heard, nor shall you utter a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So the ark of the Lord went around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord passed on, blowing the trumpets continually. The armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. On the second day they marched around the city once, and then returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at dawn, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. 
And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers we sent. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction so as not to covet, and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord. They shall go to the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. Good. Well, Dawkins' first objection to this story is, he says, that it's clearly untrue because of its miraculous element. So he writes... The story has it that the walls came tumbling down at the mere sound of men shouting and blowing horns. So indeed, it didn't happen. This raises the question of how we deal with any story that has miraculous elements within it. We can decide that it's myth rather than history, or we can allow literary artistry in the telling of the story. On stronger ground for scholars, though, The archaeological evidence has not found walls dating to the right period in Jericho. So either the event happened at a different period, or the story has grown in the telling. Early excavators, such as a man called Garstang, discovered a section of collapsed wall in the 1930s, and immediately they identified that as these walls. But later work revealed that the walls were later than the early Bronze Age, the time at which the purported event took place. By the time of the 13th century BCE, where this attack fits chronologically, there was virtually no habitation there at all. Of course, with some of the archaeological redating that's gone on in recent years, the time gap lessened slightly, but probably not enough to provide firm evidence. This raises the wider question of the validity of archaeological evidence for proving the Bible. It is clearly also interpretative in many ways. And so is this a good or desirable method in itself? It's a related question. Can we prove the Bible by digging up evidence of walls or no walls? So that's his first critique, is about the walls came tumbling down is simply not true. His second critique is the xenophobic destruction described. He writes, Good old Joshua didn't rest until they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword, Joshua 6.21. Well, clearly, this is a tale of wholesale destruction. How do we deal with this in a Christian context today? Well, when I turn on the news in the evenings, um, I often see things that slightly resemble this. Um, 
this sort of wholesale slaughter in the context of battle is nothing new. Um, there is no doubt, I think, in this situation that had the roles been reversed uh, and the Canaanites were overpowering the Israelites rather than the other way around, the wholesale slaughter would have happened in the opposite direction. This was their world, um, as unfortunately it is still our world in many ways. We cannot extrapolate from this story that this kind of behaviour is right now, nor should we wish to. But we can understand it, and we can understand it in the terms of the time in relation to the special relationship between God and Israel, because ultimately they believed that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was fighting wars for them. And so this is a kind of holy war situation where they are the victors in this situation. Uh, they are uh, the triumphant ones who overcome the enemy, and they praise God for that uh, fact. And of course, the wholesale destruction of the enemy is part and parcel of that triumph. Their stories, um, there are many stories, this is just one of them, about the early conquest of Israel. And it's about the gaining of the promised land, uh, ultimately, and the way that this was done city by city. So, I mean, I would say that we're not unfamiliar with the notion of wholesale destruction of towns and villages today. Um, not that this passage should lead us to condone such behaviour today either. Dawkins' third point on this is that the conquest of the land is problematic. Little more than stealing someone else's property, he says. The Joshua and Jericho story marks the beginning of the conquest of the land, and this fact of taking over someone else's land, as it is presented in the Old Testament, is, for us today, uh, deeply problematic, even though it forms the starting point of many modern conflicts. I think of, you know, the taking over of part of Ukraine by Russia. I mean, the annexation of land is something also uh, going on today. So we have this uh, difficult issue about the conquest of land, and we still see uh, the ramifications in the Middle East of that, uh, of that today. The idea of a holy war is also featured here. Uh, this idea of God being on the side of a particular people. And this was universal in the ancient Near East. Everybody believed that their kings were sponsored by particular gods. They were mandated by their gods to fight, to defeat, and to conquer. The appearance of the angel at the very start of this account indicates the nature of the conquest as divinely authorised military activity. So God asserts that the battle against the Canaanites is his own battle, and Joshua is the human leader who will put that into action. The Ark of the Covenant that is carried is also a symbol of holy war. You remember the Ark of the Covenant where the two tablets of the stone of stone containing the Ten Commandments were supposed to have been placed. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was a very holy object and in this period it was taken around with the army and it was thought to you know, give them good luck, basically. Uh, and if it was captured by the enemy, that was um, a sign that they were weak and uh, you know would, would have been a sort of 
a major problem for them. So this Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of their of the presence of God in their midst and of their success uh, is important. The act of encircling the city is primarily then a religious act because they're going round with the priests and the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. The repetition of the number seven recalls the days of creation and the Sabbath. Uh, and so we see in the telling of this story elements of wider beliefs coming in. And of course we have to question whether it was written down at the time or many centuries later and all those sorts of questions. So one could argue really that the emphasis here is not necessarily on historical veracity, we can't be absolutely sure what happened, but on what this tells us about the God of Israel, Yahweh. And we read uh, in Joshua 6.2, the Lord said to Joshua, see I have handed Jericho over to you along with its king and soldiers. And that reminds us a little bit of Deuteronomy 4 when there's the gift of land to Israel. I mean, this is seen as God's uh, activity on behalf of Israel. You'll have noticed when it was being read that this account is quite repetitive in style, almost liturgical. And scholars believe it could have been recited and retold as part of a recitation of God's deeds on behalf of Israel maybe done on religious occasions, a bit like a kind of creed that one repeats a number of times over and over in the liturgy in order to state this fact about God's deliverance of Israel. It's also a good piece of narrative artistry, actually. It's quite a good yarn with its own necessary climax. The wholesale slaughter, including animals, could also be understood liturgically as the slaughter of the city was seen, certainly through later eyes, as an act of sacrifice to God, parallel to the idea of animal sacrifice. This was the first of the acts of the conquest. This is the first fruit, or the first, the first fruit offered to God, paralleling the first of the flock, the eldest of the flock, uh, that was often uh, traditionally sacrificed to God. Clearly there was also an issue of sin and its judgment, uh, the Canaanites were perceived as the sinners and the Israelites as the righteous ones. But this was joined by ideas of holiness and purity. So I'm just explaining all this to put it into a bit of context. It doesn't really make the story right in moral terms, but it explains a little bit what's going on. The presentation of the whole story in liturgical terms, pointing out significant features that were important to them in the worship of God is an aspect that people don't think about when they first read this text. And obviously this is probably due to the account being forged later than the events it describes. So it is with the hindsight of thinking about this event and pondering upon it uh, that, that it becomes told and formed in its, in its current uh, presentation. This story in Joshua then uh, is quite a famous one. Most people will have heard of it. Uh, many Christians come across it in their children's Bibles. It's a great opportunity, isn't it? For a, I, can, I can see in my mind the picture in my children's Bible of, of the walls coming tumbling down. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to illustrate. An aspect, the aspect that's most focused on in the children's Bible, of course, would be the falling of the walls by the sound of the trumpets, the very miraculous part that Dawkins highlights. 
And this, in a way, is what makes the story extraordinary and worth telling. It is a story about triumph against the odds, the kind of story we hear of, especially in the context of war. Uh, and so you can kind of imagine people rather enjoying this story as it shows uh, the triumph of the Israelites uh, against the Canaanites, uh, just as in wartime uh, one tells stories of the bravery of one side over uh, the stupidity of the other. So this is my attempt to contextualise it, but not necessarily to condone it. And then the second example uh, I want to talk about, um, before perhaps we have a chance for a few uh, questions and bits of discussion, um, is the Judges 11 uh, passage. Uh, because this is another very difficult, this is perhaps even more difficult, this passage. Um, and uh, I think it raises quite a few questions. Is someone going to read the Judges 11 then? Ah. Oh. So it's Judges 11, verses 29 to 40. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He inflicted a massive defeat on them from Aurora to the neighbourhood of Minith, 20 towns, and as far as Abel Keramin. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, my father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has given you vengeance against your enemies, the Ammonites. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Grant me two months so that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my companions and I. Go, he said, and send her away for two months. So she departed, she and her companions, and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow he had made. She had never slept with a man. So there arose an Israelite custom that for four days every year, the daughters of Israel would go out to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. On this text, Dawkins repeatedly asks the question, what kind of God expects loyalty to the point of sacrificing one's own offspring? And what kind of morality does that convey? This time I'm going to put the focus less on Dawkins' criticism, which is fairly obvious here, and more on interpretation of the passage in context. 
Jephthah is described as a mighty warrior. And if you go back a little further behind this passage in the very beginning of chapter 11, which we haven't really got time to to read, but we find that description, that he's a mighty warrior who has been rejected by his brothers as the son of a prostitute mother. He's welcomed home after some years as a warring bandit, as the one most likely to be able to stave off the Ammonite threat. And so just before this, we have the story of the unlikely son, you know, the successful unlikely son. Here he was, the son of a prostitute mother, but he was chosen as the one who would fend off the enemy, the Ammonites, in this situation. This is a regular story in the Old Testament. Um, We think perhaps most famously of David, who was, of course, the unlikely son. He was out tending the sheep when he was chosen. Jephthah negotiates becoming leader as a prerequisite of his return. And then we come into our passage where he makes this foolish vow or promise that if he gains victory in the war against the Ammonites, he will sacrifice the first living thing that he sees on his return, specifically whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me. That tragically turns out to be his daughter, his only child. Dawkins writes about this. Understandably, Jephthah rent his clothes, but there was nothing he could do about it. God was obviously looking forward to the promised burnt offering, and in the circumstances, the daughter very decently agreed to be sacrificed. Slightly tongue-in-cheek, I think. It's a terrible story, and it's not often read in church because it's often not in the lectionary. I think, you know, perhaps the, uh, the people who make up the lectionary were sensible because it's a difficult one. It is a story, of course, about obedience and the keeping of promises, even though the outcome is highly difficult for us morally. It is also, again, about God being on the side of the victor, but demanding something back from the relationship in this case. So the situation described is horrific to us as we naturally put ourselves in the position of the father and daughter. It has strong overtones with the Abraham and Isaac episode. There's Abraham uh, on the verge of sacrificing Isaac to God. Here again, the only child, the sacrifice. But, of course, in that story, uh, the sacrificial ram is um, put in the place of the son, and the son is not sacrificed. Um, So this averts the horrendous deed Um, or any divine intervention or approval or disapproval. The irony is that in the earlier verses of of Judges 11, here, here, Judges 11, Jephthah comes across as a rather capable leader who tries diplomatic talks with the enemy via emissaries, albeit in rather nationalistic terms, before resorting to war. So he's portrayed as a bit of a diplomat, first of all, and war is the last resort. He argues that Israel has for a long time possessed the disputed land and he has no desire to fight over it now. It's only when the Ammonites refuse to heed his message that Jephthah makes his promise, which is said to be guided by the Spirit of the Lord. The promise that Jephthah makes is in fact a solemn vow and it is a a pledge that involves a sort of self-curse if it's not upheld. So if you, if you break the vow, that would be very 
detrimental to yourself and your relationship with your God. It's very much about defining your own relationship. This kind of vow in the context of preparation for battle is also there in the Old Testament. There's another example in Judges 21. So it's seen as a kind of fair exchange for victory. You know, you make a solemn vow to the Lord and then the Lord will offer you the victory that you wish. Rather in the nature of a sacrificial offering, which would of course be that you make the sacrifice in the hope that God will hear your prayer and, and that would, is a kind of cementing of the vow. Um, one might think of the deeply problematic Deuteronomy 13:16, where the spoil of whole towns, including inhabitants and livestock, are an offering to God. It has been suggested that Jephthah expected to have to practice human sacrifice as a result of his vow. But human sacrifice is not an Israelite practice. In fact, it's roundly condemned in the Old Testament. It says in 2 Kings 3, 26-7, that although the Moabites were well known for their child sacrifice activity, um, that the Israelites do not practice this. This is not an Israelite thing to do. It's roundly condemned in Israelite circles. So it seems highly unlikely that Jephthah thought in terms of a human sacrifice. It's more likely that he was thinking or hoping that a domestic animal might be the first to greet him. But since the courtyard of the house was a typical workplace for the women, he should perhaps have thought twice. So I think he was being somewhat rash and foolish when he made this vow. But these sorts of vows were not uncommon, and one can see where he was coming from in making it. His unnamed daughter, note that she is unnamed here, women were often un unnamed in the Old Testament, she comes out to greet him with timbrels and with dancing. And this is an interesting feature of women's roles in the Old Testament. They're often the musicians, um, and they are involved in rejoicing, but also in lamenting. They often accompany funerals with uh, mourning songs and, and instruments, as well as um, joyous occasions. You know, there's a, quite a, a musical aspect to the female role in the Old Testament. Jephthah's response when he sees his daughter is to say, Alas, my daughter, you've become the cause of great trouble to me. Presuming, presumably, referring perhaps not just to the sacrifice that he suddenly realises he's going to have to make, but also the impending loss of descendants. Because in this culture too, the women, that's what the women were there for, really, to uh, reproduce. Uh, t the main benefit of having a daughter certainly would be um, for childbearing. He states that he cannot go back on his vow as it was made to God. We might contrast this with other characters in the Old Testament who do go back on vows. Um, Saul did, for example, um, in relation to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14.45. He broke his vow and of course he ends up being rejected as king of Israel. He's seen to be a man who doesn't keep his vows and his promises. So it's a criticism often of someone if they break a vow. Jephthah's daughter is perhaps surprisingly in the prevailing culture allowed a little initiative in this story uh, rather than solely being a pawn in a drama not of her own making. Although she's remarkably accepting as, of her fate, she does negotiate a couple of months with her women friends to 
quote, bewail my virginity, 1137. And this is granted, uh, although, of course, ultimately the sacrifice is done. That is an interesting detail that we're given there about that, um, that request and the fulfilling of that request. A final note in the chapter links the lament over her virginity with a custom amongst the young women in Israel of lamenting this woman's fate for four days each year. You'll have noticed that at the very end of the passage. And also with, it's linked with a woman's rite of passage from virginity in her father's household to the adult responsibilities of marriage and childbearing once she has a husband. So it's actually explained at the end there as a story that lies behind a ritual that they, they do each year. It's a kind of explanation story on one level, although of course it's related to a specific narrative here. Unusually in this story, Jephthah's daughter is Jephthah's heir. She, he has no male descendants. In normal circumstances, only men could inherit unless the inheritance had to be passed on to the daughters, and that would only be when there was a lack of a male heir. But this seems to be the case here, which is also unusual. You, you have to ask yourself sometimes with the Old Testament, why is this story actually being told? You know, there are unusual elements in it that led to it being told and remembered and preserved. And clearly the, the liturgical aspect at the end, and some of these things about his only child, his daughter, her being the inheritor, these are sort of unusual things that stand out um, in this story. Can we exonerate Jephthah at all? It is possible that the root of Jephthah's troubles lies with his parentage. It's always, you, you always put it down to your parentage, can't you? <laughs> this is what some scholars have said. <laughs> anyway, his mother was a prostitute, <laughs> and his father was called Gilead, meaning rugged. So perhaps he wasn't brought up in the ways of Yahweh and the ways of Israel. Maybe he misunderstood the nature of the God of Israel. A suggestion that the god Shemosh, the national god of the Moabites, also linked here to Ammon, exists and has rights, seems to imply a polytheistic context. Another interesting thing is that Jephthah is described earlier in the passage as the people's choice, not God's choice. The people thought he would be good for the job, one of the best leaders, but God doesn't actually um, condone him. He's kind of po the, popular, the popular choice, brought back from formerly being outlawed. So maybe he wasn't the most suitable person, in fact, for the job. Furthermore, his making of a deal before going into battle could be seen as out of line, an attempt to secure success before setting out, rather than trusting in God's deliverance without having to make such a vow. The story then perhaps indicates a judgment on such ill-considered vow-making as part of a wider indictment of Jephthah. In this context, the vow is to be seen as a self-indulgent insurance policy that seeks to control God but backfires when his daughter appears. However, it is problematic that we're told that the Spirit of God came upon him before he made his vow. That does suggest that God did condone the vow so should we blame God directly for the outcome of this story? Or is this the expression of the 
sorry, or this is this its expression of the spirit of the Lord coming upon him, more to do with preparation for battle, such as Samson uh, did in Judges 15. Why does God fail to intervene to prevent the sacrifice here, in contrast to what he did in the situation of Abraham and Isaac? There are a number of ways of interpreting this story, as you can see, and many questions arise. There's also a purity issue. The harlot mother, Jephthah's mother was a prostitute. Here is his virginal daughter being sacrificed. Perhaps there's a counterpoint there between the harlot and the virgin. The daughter's acceptance of her fate is praised in the account, and she's therefore regularly remembered, remembrance being seen as a sign of blessing. In the Old Testament, it's the worst thing to be forgotten. If you can be remembered uh, for many generations, that is a sign of lasting righteousness and blessing. So the regular remembrance of her might well be the reason this story was circulated. It may well be that people ask the question, what, what are the origins of this ritual that we're doing? And people told this story. So my aim here has not been to condone a dreadful story, but to seek to understand it, first in its culture, and second in relation to the way the authors of the Old Testament tell it. And I think, as elsewhere, the weakness of the new atheist attack is that the text is simply extrapolated for its lack of morality without being understood in its own cultural context. That context does not condone the text morally, but it helps us to understand why the characters concerned behaved in this way and why we need to reject such behaviour. It helps us to see what our moral boundaries might be in such a situation. The biblical world is a patriarchal one revolving around men. And yet in the story of Jephthah's daughter, small touches communicate the pathos of the young woman's fate, her acceptance, her virginity and her passivity. The passage from Judges, with its broader ramifications, offers us the challenge of encounter with a very difficult text. I can't quite imagine reading that out and then saying, this is the word of the Lord at the end of it. It seems somehow to jar. It's a challenge we need to accept, though, from time to time, I think, rather than sweeping such difficult encounters under the proverbial carpet.